Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. So I'll begin by saying mani na putni. I'm so glad to see you all here. And agza gana gitanga uindi. So we're standing here in the Art Gallery of South Australia on Ghana land. So I have the great, the great privilege of introducing you today to Honor Freeman, who I'm sure is familiar to most of you, being a local here in Adelaide, um, and a very well-established um, ceramicist who has exhibited internationally as well as nationally, um, and has been working here at the gallery, or, or spending her time here at the gallery, kind of sifting through our collection for about 12 months now as part of the 2019 Guildhouse Collections Project. Um, and it has been quite interesting to see you uncover things in the collection, but particularly uncovering new stories associated with objects um, that have been here for a very long time. And so here, in partnership with Guildhouse, we are presenting a project called Ghost Objects, which is essentially a suite of four new works by Honor, made from porcelain, um, which are positioned within the permanent collection space here in the Melrose Wing. And I think it's quite interesting to think about how it's extending your practice um, and continuing around the ideas that you've been long interested in around the um, passing of time, really. So this space looks at ideas about time and it is appropriately titled Afterlife. So we're looking at objects associated with rituals of mourning. Um, and I've been interested in, in your thoughts around quite humble objects. I think you called them democratic objects that are hardworking, um, such as mourning bro brooches, um, just over to the left, 19th century mourning brooches that contain the hair of loved ones lost, or this second century AD um, flask, which is associated with stories about mourners actually capturing their tears. But I will leave it to you to talk about those stories, as well as, um, I guess, how you've come to have this practice, but also how you came to create this new body of work. So join me in um, welcoming Honor Freeman. Um, firstly, thanks for the warm welcome, Elle, and thanks everybody for coming along to hear me chat about ghost objects today. Um, as with all of these things, I can kind of waffle on and figure out what comes to my mind today when I talk about the work, but also um, it'd be really great if you've got some questions at the end to, uh, to you know, stick your hand up and we'll go through those because <clears throat> I'm sure there's other things and other directions that the talk could take um, and things that you're particularly interested in that I'll probably might not even touch on. Um, so yeah, I'd like to acknowledge today that we are um, on the land of the Ghana people and pay my respects to them, um, past, present and emerging. Um, <clears throat> and with, yeah, I'm trying to think about where, to, was it, where do you start? Um, <clears throat> when I was first invited, probably I think it was about 18 months ago, to do this project, I was thinking about, gosh, such an incredible, um, privilege and a really amazing opportunity <clears throat> and there's this huge like this vast collection of objects that are just never on display and how do you there's so many different ways that you could come into that collection and how do you 
find a voice within that and find your way in and give yourself the space to go down the various rabbit holes and make new discoveries and find new stories. So initially, I sort of tentatively started with the idea of ghost objects, which is a way that I've been describing my process of making um, for some time now. And it's very much this kind of idea of slip casting in porcelain amongst other processes where, <clears throat> excuse my tickle today, um, whereby the casting process is sort of, uh, is like a memory of a past object. So I've been calling them ghost objects. So my way in was initially these kind of the unknown makers and craft makers that are really surrounding these ancient ceramic objects, um, especially um, because ceramics is this kind of material that has been with us since time immemorial. Um, and so those were some of the ways that I was kind of coming into the collection. And then quite early on in the research process, my dad died. And so this idea of ghost objects really took on quite a different meaning. Um, so it wasn't just all these unknown makers and the unknown stories and the disappeared objects or the objects that hadn't been shown for some time, but it sort of then opened up um, this huge kind of vast collection of objects that are involved in grieving and the ritual around us for well, um, farewelling our loved ones and this, uh, this passage into the afterlife. And so because ceramics has been and clay has been with us since you know um, centuries and centuries and stretching back um, there are a great many objects in the collection as well involved with the rituals of um, passing into the spiritual life so I began exploring some of those objects uh, within the collection as well and one of the first ones and it's a small object I've been drawn to for quite some time, this tiny little vase from the second century. And it's a Roman flask, and it's like I had the great, <laughs> the great um, privilege of holding this object, and it's as light as a feather, like it's like a breath. Um, and it just uh, confounds me how an object so fine and delicate has survived the centuries. Like it's travelled across oceans and, you know, I, I, I can't even begin to imagine the life that this little object has had, but it was a, many of those objects just really blew my mind about the stories that they hold that perhaps we'd never know or we've mythologised um, and how they've come to be in a collection and, and survived as well. But going back to this object, um, <clears throat> so these objects are many of this kind of size and shape were found in really great numbers in Roman, Greek and Hebrew tombs. And for the longest time, they were thought to hold the tears of mourners um, and were buried with the dead, which is uh, a really beautiful story, I think, and one that I kind of want to hold on to. Um, and I'm going to get the psalm wrong, but it was kind of linked to Psalm 56 or 65. I'm going to flip my numbers. Um, and it was to do a passage along the line of um, tell us thou wanderings, put down thy tears in thy bottle and um, 
yeah, you can look that up and find that I've probably completely misquoted that. Um, but it was, so I don't know exactly when it's been debunked, but sort of, you know, years later, it's come to pass that that actually isn't the story and they were probably just had oils in them. Um, but I really love the other story. And they, so they were called lacrimatories, sort of like to relate to uh, the lacrimal uh, tear ducts. Um, so yeah, so I became interested in that object also because when my dad died, mum gave me a stack of his hankies in that way of when you're sort of gathering a loved one's kind of uh, belongings. And so these, these hankies sat for some time on my table and I would look at them and I would be thinking about them. And, um, and slowly they did find their way into the work, kind of, I guess, contemporary tear vessels of a sort where they are forever sort of immortalised in porcelain. And the process of doing these is not like slip casting the buckets or the soaps. It's more putting the, the hanky into the clay. Uh, it sort of is, sucks up that that clay and water and takes on the form. And when you fire it, it's, I guess it's almost like a cremation process where the object is, uh, is burnt out in the kiln. And so lots of these hankies are actually have been, I put a bit of a call out and people sent, sent them to me. Uh, so there's lots of really beautiful stories that people have, have shared in the sending of them. Um, <clears throat> so I think this one down here was, um, was somebody's grandma learnt the process of crochet um, migrating out here on the boat from England and got taught the, the process by a suffragette on the, the, on the boat when they were travelling, which is just such a beautiful story. And then there's others of where, you know, I guess families that were quite poor and that, in that sort of way of um, making do and making, getting the most out of something, sheets were cut down and turned into hankies and she had sort of passed these on. So. Um, there's a certain nostalgia in those objects which I wasn't especially imagining there was, that wasn't necessarily my starting point but I guess I've come to see that a lot of the objects that I particularly gravitate towards have a particular nostalgia and often it's the stories, really lovely kind of intimate stories that people share with me that is a surprising thing that I've enjoyed with the work I guess. Um, so I guess um, the other work, so this piece is called uh, Shape of Tears. Um, and then the soaps running around the wall in a kind of, uh, almost like a metronome timing uh, <clears throat> are things I know you've touched. And they came about I have been casting soaps for some time, but specific to this project, um, my mum also gave me my dad's, the last soap that he had been uh, using when he died. And it took me some time to cut, it is one of the pieces up there, um, and it took me some time to decide to cast that piece because often in the casting process that the object is destroyed. So it was quite, um, quite a commitment to do that and it really only happened kind of several weeks before the show went up and <clears throat> um, what do I want to say about those soaps? This time round I have 
repaired, I guess, the wounds or the crevices with gold, which sort of came about, um, there's this really sweet tea bowl over here that's from the 16th century and it's one of the only tea bowls in an Australian collection that has, has an official naming, which is something that's very important in Japan. And the tea bowl, back, I think it was, a, oh, maybe that one's from the 17th, doesn't really matter, but in the 16th century, they first began uh, repairing with gold lacquer um, and gold dust the breaks and the cracks in pottery. And it was sort of, I guess it's sort of a, an invitation to a meditation on beauty and loss and transformation and, you know, entropy, I don't know, wounds. And so there's riffing on that idea of kintsugi, um, which is the process of repair. I went about repairing, I suppose, the wounds or tending to those cracks in the soaps. And there was a way, I think, of doing that, that in the studio, I was sort of, I guess, making sense of grief or making sense of my father's death in the repair of these objects, I think, in a strange way. Because it feels like, particularly in uh, contemporary Western culture, there's a real lack of, um, I guess, ritual around and how we farewell someone. So it feels very antiseptic or very separate. And for so long, we've had all these rituals. And in all cultures, they've had these rituals connected to the passing and this, this afterlife and the, this, uh, these spirits going off into the afterlife and how we give them that good journey and how we kind of make sense of that. But it just feels like it's really lacking. So for me, exploring other cultures' responses to that was like my way, I guess, of making sense in the studio through the making where I perhaps don't always have the words that I want in those moments. Um, of course, the Japanese tea bowl is not an object of mourning. Um, but it, it felt for me like it's an object that it holds its former self and the story of its break as well as its new self, sort of like a rebirth or transformation. Um, <clears throat> but the mourning jewellery over here, um, which is from the Victorian period, did captivate my imagination for a time. Um, it was the, the brooches or other forms of jewellery were worn um, when someone was in a process of mourning and it was quite a part of a theatre or a costume that one would assume when they moved through the world to to announce to the to everybody that they were in mourning and how to be treated when you were in that way so I was fascinated by um, by these beautiful little objects and then they also held in them uh, the hair of the person who was lost and there's another example in on I couldn't tell you which gallery, I'm sorry. But there's a, some more mourning jewellery and there's a beautiful daguerreotype on, the, on the, um, the rear or on the face that you sort of wear closest to your heart, which is another beautiful piece. And men, much of the mourning jewellery also has uh, pearls within it, which is sort of another symbolism of tears, So, which I discovered in the research was... Um, sort of relates, I guess, closely to the buckets and the mother of pearl luster 
that is on these pieces. Um, this piece sitting in the centre is called All the Tears I Cried, um, which was an exploration on, you know, how many tears do you cry in a lifetime? And apparently it's 61.5 litres. Um, yeah, this, this piece really broke my heart in the making. Um, I started off and thought, this is great, I've got this piece, right, I'll work on that one while I'm sorting everything else out. And such is the nature of clay, the first object was beautiful. And then I chased that for forever more, and I swear I made somewhere between 25 and 30 of these blaming porcelain buckets to just try and get some survivors. And it really... It was, um, it was quite an ordeal and I think most days I was just like, oh, it, it almost broke my spirit and it did bring the tears but maybe, uh, you know, you invite that in when you choose to make a work about the number of tears you'll cry in a lifetime. Um, so over here above the, um, the black folded face, there is, uh, there's a small square soap and there's a longer soap and then there's another sort of square soap that's, and that was, yeah, and that was his, um, thank you. So the question was, which was, uh, which was the soap of my, of my dad's? But strangely, there's many of the soaps who I can remember the stories of who shared them as well, and I've documented them all at home, you know, they're in my computer, it just seemed important in the process to myself, but, um, <laughs> um, yeah, they're strangely, they are strangely intimate uh, and poignant objects that, you know, that they know us at our most intimate and um, they're strangely repellent but sort of say so much in their sort of very humble democracy, I guess. Um, I've always, I have been always drawn to the, the kind of the very everyday, I think it's a nice in way and holds lots of metaphor and... Uh, we know these objects, so they're sort of quiet and gentle, but um, they can hold a lot of uh, poetry, I think, and a lot of layers of meaning, yeah. Yeah, no, a question about the Besser blocks, certainly. They were a late entry um, into this. They're pieces that I made um, a couple of years ago, and I, I have a Besser block that I have traipsed from Adelaide to Sydney and back again into all the various studios despite my partner's <clears throat> chagrin about that. Um, it, strangely, I think objects that are in your studio that you work with do find a way into your practice somehow. I like that they're heft and they're these kind of pretty hard-working, humble objects. There's a nice relationship with them, with the bucket. Um, and I like that it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a shift away from objects on plinths, which ceramics has very traditionally been plopped on plinths. And this is a, just a nice, I, I, a good challenge for me to kind of extend it sort of further beyond that, I guess. And they're great to make, rather stepping away from really intimate objects. It's, um, yeah, thank you. Well, it's, I have to say that the technique for these is not especially sophisticated, like in terms of um, ceramic process. Like it's, 
porcelain slip is like water, clay, and a deflocculant and a couple of other things if you need to really tweak it. And that suspends uh, the clay body so that all the particles are everywhere and doing their right thing. I had to do a little bit of unknowing and return to early student days to really get those to work just as I wanted them. Because if they've got too much clay in them, then they're super fragile and they, uh, they don't take the, the really fine detail. So it's a real, it was a real process of, if you asked, I, I, I don't seem to work with recipes and I'm not very good with that. Like I end up adding water and this, and so it's a real fuel kind of thing. But it is very much the, the, the fabric taking on the porcelain and the, the clay. Whereas these ones are sort of with plaster moulds and um, yeah, and slip cast in that way where there's a cavity inside the mould and the plaster is very thirsty so it drinks the excess liquid and you're left with like a, a shell of the original. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I have a question. I'd like to know um, where you collected all these soaps from. Like where did all these other soaps come from? Um, yeah, certainly. Um, so... so Many people have donated them uh, over time, posted them, dropped them off. A number of years ago, I made a work reflecting on the number of soap you, or how you measure a life in soap, I guess. And so there were 656. And so I have, I do have at my disposal a great many plaster moulds in my studio uh, of soaps, yeah. I'm starting to sort of drown in plaster moulds, I have to say. Mm. I think um, now I think it's quite rare to actually see people using soaps anymore, so it's, it's, it's something you don't really see very often anymore, so it's nice to see you again. Yeah, yeah, no, we're a fan of the soap at home. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, when you're talking about... Um, Oh, but when you, when you have old soaps, generally when they crack and they start to fall apart, you just keep remoulding them and you can fold them into each other. So I guess there's an interesting um, story behind how people use soaps. Yeah, yeah, yep, indeed. And there was those old, um, those old metal frames that you could kind of squish them all in to kind of recreate from many... Uh, a new one, which was... I found that almost slightly creepier, like bringing them all together to reuse, but... Yeah. <laughs> So the question is how the gold was put inside the soaps. And so for these, they, they're bisque fired, and then they're sanded, and then their um, glaze is painted in and cleaned back, and then they are fired to porcelain and they come out, and then I paint gold luster where all the crevices and the glaze is, and then they go back in for another firing and come out and are sanded again. Yeah. No, that one is, I think it's about a five or six piece mould of um, a towel. Yeah, so it's, yeah, slightly different process. So more like the soaps, slightly more complicated, but yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so that's a porcelain slip as well and they're hollow, hollow forms, yeah. Oh, well, I'll often, I've, yeah, like I fold them and position them on just newspaper, let them dry, clean them up a little bit and pop them in the kiln. Yeah, it's, um, 
yeah, but it's just that kind of great alchemy of, of clay to, it's, it is, there's this lovely kind of magic, I suppose, where it just goes from liquid or a lump to, yeah, this whole other thing. When you give it over to the kiln and, you know, hold your breath, you, you open the door to sometimes, or, oh, yeah, it doesn't, it's a little bit of both, yeah. Yeah, so there, that's, um, it's a simple glaze underneath, and then similar to the soaps, there's this thing, you can buy all these various, and I think a lot of China painters use them, but there's this, all these lusters that you can get, and there's a great variety of mother of pearl luster, so when you, um, you know, paint that on, you get that beautiful, uh, yeah, sort of oil slicky kind of, yeah, meniscus sort of. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to come and say thank you. Um, I do want to mention a big thank you to you, Anna, but also firstly, um, a few people to thank. So Lee Robb, our curator of contemporary art, who works so closely with Anna on this project, who is unwell and in bed today and sends her apologies. Um, but also the CEO of Guildhouse, Emma Fay, who's been incredibly supportive, and the um, manager of artistic programs, Deb Pryor, as well. Um, but mostly to Anna, thank you for being so, I think, open and vulnerable um, in your work, but also in the way that you speak about your work. Um, it's deeply personal, but also obviously very universal in the way it touches all of us. So thank you, and everyone, please thank Anna. <laughs>